Chapters 1, 2, and 4 of Every Man His Own University by Russell Herman Conwell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Horner. Chapter 1 Every Man's University. A distinct university walks about under each man's hat. The only man who achieves success in the other universities of the world and in the larger university of life is the man who has first taken his graduate course and his postgraduate course in the university under his hat. Their observation furnishes a daily change in the curriculum. Books are not the original sources of power, but observation, which may bring to us all wide experience, deep thinking, fine feeling, and the power to act for oneself, is the very dynamo of power. Without observation, literature and meditation are shower and sunshine upon unbroken soil. Only those schools and colleges are true schools and colleges, which regard it as the chief business of all their teaching to persuade those under their charge to see more perfectly what they are looking at, to find what they should have been unable to observe had it not been for their school instruction. You can't make a good arrow from a pig's tail and you can seldom get a man worthwhile out of one who has gone through the early part of his life without having learned to be alert when things are to be seen or heard john stuart blackie says that it is astonishing how much we all go about with our eyes wide open and see nothing and dr johnson says that some men shall see more while riding ten miles upon the top of an omnibus than some others shall see in riding over the continent how to observe should be the motto not only in the beginning of our life but throughout our career with the same intellectual gifts interested in the same ideas two men walk side by side through the same scenery and meet the same people one man has had much inspiration from the country traversed and has been intent upon all that he has seen and heard among the people the other has caught no inspiration from beauty or bird or blossom and only the trivialities of the people have amused him a traveller in athens or rome paris or london may be shown these cities by a professional guide and yet gain only a smattering of what these cities hold in store for him and remember little of what he has seen another traveller unattended by a guide but observant of everything that comes to his eyes and ears will carry away stores from his visit to those cities which shall be of lifelong interest and be serviceable to all who shall travel his way. The solitary but observant stranger in a country almost always profits most from his travels. He is compelled to notice boulevards and buildings, parks and people, and every day of his travels is a lesson in observation that accustoms him to remember all he has once seen. The newspaper correspondents of other days had no guidebooks or guides and they were entire strangers in the places they visited they relied entirely upon themselves to find their way and to discover everything that was valuable and interesting they find much that the modern guide either overlooks or disregards and wrote for the papers at home what would most interest and instruct their readers when henry m stanley first visited jerusalem he insisted that the dragoman in charge of his party should keep all guides and guidebooks out of his sight in two days stanley knew the streets and the location of the temple and the holy sepulchre and all the notable places in that old city if stanley is to-day known as one of the most intelligent of travellers it is mainly because he excelled in daily observation 
which everyone who thinks for himself recognises as the supreme acquisition of a liberal education. He often said that he knew Rome, Naples and Vienna far better than he knew New York, where he had lived many years of his life. In that he resembled the rest of humanity, who generally know less about what is notable in their home places than observant visitors know who stay there only a short time during the travels. What we pay for in time and labour seems more valuable. Nothing pay, nothing value. A great foreign correspondent of his day, Henry W. Chambers, remained only six hours at Baalbek, near Damascus. Yet he wrote the clearest description that probably ever was written of the magnificent temples at Baalbek. And he wrote these descriptions too at Hong Kong, after many and varied experiences while visiting other places of greater importance. Many archaeologists and literary men before him had visited the moat of the great fortress at Baalbek. Still, they had never observed as Chambers observed, and so they missed seeing the arrowheads and all the other warlike instruments used in those ancient days, which had lain unnoticed among those huge pillars and great foundation stones. Although General Lew Wallace lived a long time at Jerusalem, he only imagined that there might have been an inner dungeon underneath the great prison. So when he wrote Ben-Hur, he put his leprous heroine into this imaginary prison house. A schoolteacher from northern England, with her tourist candle, afterward found the doorway of this prison which Wallace had only imagined to be there. On their way from Egypt and Palestine to the Euphrates, travellers had for centuries passed over the same path in the desert, but it was reserved for a cutter of marble inscriptions. After all these centuries, to observe the Rosetta Stone, by the help of which archaeologists can now read the inscriptions upon the tablets in the ancient palaces of Babylon and Nineveh. Millions and millions had seen the lid of a tea kettle bobbing up and down over the boiling water before that Scotchman observed it while making watches. But he was the first of all those millions whose close observation led him to investigate this force of boiling water in the tea kettle. Then he applied this power to the steam engine, which is still the great propelling force of the world. From the time of the Garden of Eden, apples had fallen in the orchards of the world through all the harvest days. Of all the billions that had seen apples falling, only Sir Isaac Newton observed the law of gravitation that was involved in their falling. All the great discoverers began with nearly the same meagre powers for observation that the rest of the world has, but early in life came to value above all other mental powers. This incalculable power too closely a notice, and each made his realm of observation much richer for his discoveries. Why do the majority of us go through life seeing nothing of the millions of marvellous truths and facts, while only a few keep their eyes and ears wide open, and every day are busy in piling up what they have observed? The loss of our instincts seems to be the price we pay today for the few minor acquisitions we get from school and college. We put out our brains to make room for our learning, the man who assiduously cultivates his powers of observation and thus gains daily from his experiences what helps him to see farther and clearer everything in life that is worth seeing, has given himself a discipline that is much more important than the discipline of all the schools and the colleges without it. The greatest textbooks of the greatest universities are only the records of the observations of some close observer whose better powers of seeing things have been acquired mainly while he was taking his courses in that university under his hat. The intellect is both telescope and microscope. If it is rightly used, it shall observe thousands of things 
which are too minute and too distant for those who with eyes and ears neither see nor hear the intellect can be made to look far beyond the range of what men and women ordinarily see but not all the colleges in the world can alone confer this power this is the reward of self-culture each must acquire it for himself and perhaps this is why the power of observing deeply and widely is so much oftener found in those men and those women who have never crossed the threshold of any college but the university of hard knocks the quickening power of science only he can know from whose own soul it gushes free when we look back over our life and reflect how many things we might have seen and heard had we trained our powers of observation we seem to have climbed little and to have spent most of our time upon plateaus while our achievements seem little better than scratches upon black marble mankind has a greater esteem for the degrees conferred by the university of observation and experience than for all the other degrees of all other universities in the world the only thing that seems most to win the respect of real men and women for the degrees conferred by colleges is the fact that the graduates have first gained all that close observation and wide experience can confer the lives of the men and the women who have been worthwhile keep reminding us how vastly more important is this education from ceaseless observation than all the mere learning from school courses it takes ten pounds of the stuff gotten from observation and experience to carry one pound of school learning wisely the thinking man will never ask you what college you have gone through but what college has gone through you and the ability and habit of observing deeply and broadly is the preparation we all need that the college may go through us confucius of china Kitto of japan gotha of germany arnold of england lincoln and edison of america stand where they stand today in thought and action solely because they had in a masterly way educated their power of minute attention in building up a huge business or in amassing enormous riches such men as rothschild rockefeller and carnegie show us especially how vitally important to all material success is steadfast attendance at the school of attention the colleges that today are advancing most rapidly in esteem are those which are recognizing more and more the importance of observation they require their men to spend some portion of their college time in gaining experience in their various lines through observing the practical workings of their calling medical students are in hospitals students of law attend courts theological students engage in mission work and engineers are found in shops neither lectures or speculations can take the place of these experiences each is helpful to the other when only one may be had the experience from observing actual work is far more important opportunities for observation of practical matters along with theory is the modern idea toward which all the best modern institutions are tending in their efforts to fit men for the active business of life nor has greatness from careful observation and large experience distinguished men of action alone shakespeare gotha bunyan burns whittier longfellow james whitcomb riley and a host of the great men of philosophy science and literature are where they are to-day in the esteem of their fellow-men and in their service to humanity because they were the keenest among the men acute in observation chapter two animals and the least things the benefits brought to humanity through the study of lower animal life are incalculable 
and could not be told in one book with all that vivisection and post-mortem dissection have revealed to scientific examiners contagious and infectious diseases have been nearly removed from the human family we have been taught to live better from observing animal habits in searching for food in building their habitats in their mode of living in their fear of man and in the methods they adopt to preserve their health all this knowledge has been gained for us for the upbuilding of humanity through the efforts of close observers they have studied the cat by the hearth the dog by the door the horses in the pasture and stall the pigs in their pens and the sheep in their folds closely associated with the investigators of animal life are those who have observed the origin habits and influence of birds insects and creeping things but what we have learned from animals in the past seems only a trifle in comparison with what they will teach when we go to them with more serious purpose and more carefully observe them the leaders in all of these investigations of animal life have all been distinguished for their power to discover in animals what has escaped other people professor darwin's close observation of the doves he fed at his door opened up to him important suggestions and laid the foundation for his great treatise the origin of species when professor niles of the boston school of technology was a boy he caught a minnow while returning from school at his father's suggestion he put the fish into a simple aquarium and studied its movements when it died he carefully examined its parts under a microscope and this experience was the beginning of a vast knowledge of the animal realm while a philadelphia clergyman was visiting a farmer in northern new jersey the family became perturbed because their dog had gone mad they fastened it in the kitchen and sought somebody to kill it by shooting at it through the window a neighbor observed the dog carefully and told them it was poisoned he advised the family to loose it in order that it might set some antidote for itself in field or forest he told them that cats cattle and horses are often compelled to find an antidote for some poisonous herb they have eaten and that the animals know more about such things than any teacher in the medical schools as soon as the dog was unfastened he hastened across the field to a brook and ate a weed that was growing beside the water the dog soon returned to the house and ate heartily after a two weeks fast the clergyman had followed the dog and observed the plant which it had eaten after the dog had returned to the house he uprooted the plant and took some of its leaves to a philadelphia firm of chemists acting upon the firm's advice he sent the leaves to the smithsonian institute at washington and they were found to be a valuable antidote for poison not only was humanity given a better medicine from this discovery but the clergyman also derived a competency from it this remedy for poisoning is often used in prescriptions so even doctors sometimes go to the dogs for instructions like professor agassiz and sir oliver lodge many find their best instructors in domestic animals the files around the house and the barn may be whole universities for developing the sciences through their dependence on nature the hen is a more efficient instructor than the majority of college professors she knows by instinct so much of the laws of nature that wise men may sit at their feet or her bill and learn perhaps she may seem a little foolish in proclaiming her achievements in egg-laying by a cackle but her knowledge of the necessities of life her careful oversight of her brood the way she uses her feet and her wings her foreknowledge of approaching storms her means of defending herself when attacked by hawks 
her knowledge of the formation of the egg and of the proper time to break the shell for the release of her chick all these are worthy of the attention of even the greatest scientists in an address at a poultry men's convention oliver wendell holmes said that chickens seemed to have in them much more to study than did darwin's doves while holmes was once summering at kennebunkport maine he trained five chickens to come to his call to fly upon his head and to leap with open bills to catch a kernel of corn before the season closed the chickens would come to his bedroom even after he had retired making it necessary as dr holmes said for the landlord to serve them up for dinner dr holmes parody on longfellow's a psalm of life shows what a careful observer he was while some of longfellow's admirers resented the parody as a slight longfellow himself always treated it as complimentary he once told james t fields that in one couplet of the parody holmes had excelled the entire original poem not like muffled drums be beating on the inside of the shell longfellow told fields that there are always millions of men standing like chickens in the shell with wings they know not how to use having calls to a larger life outside of which they can see nothing that some peck away until dead on the inside of the shell while others assisted by a friend on the outside step out into a life beautiful and complete in the egg or molecule we get nearer to god than we do through the telescope or by encircling the earth he who lived nearest the first cause gets the best inspiration for visions of all greater sights or events so the cottage is a happier place than the palace for him who wishes to get better acquaintance with what shall arise finer thought and feeling the cottage is the best preparatory school for the mansion provided always that the cottage course has been thorough he who has worn his cottage life with manly dignity shall be the man to wear his mansion life with composure emerson said the entire system of things gets represented in every particle uneasy is the head that wears the crown and unfortunate is the man who gets a smattering of many things yet does not know even one small thing thoroughly the power of little things to give instruction and happiness should be the first lesson in life and it should be inculcated deeply the chief need of this discontented and sinful world is to comprehend that in one blade of grass or the shading of an evening cloud there is sufficient reverence to fill the largest heart and sufficient science to occupy the greatest passion we saw a delicate blue flower in the grass this morning which i had never noticed before it seemed a different flower from each angle and when put under a magnifying glass had colours i had never noticed before in flower or art the field where it was growing had been familiar to me for threescore years and ten yet the flower was entirely new to me it was so dainty and attractive and inspiring that i felt i had lost something important to my spiritual growth all these years something like the experience of virgil guizot carlyle grotius or like tennyson in the holy grail who declares that he had left a real and wonderful life behind to follow the unknown this little flower in the morning sunlight awakes thoughts of years long past of the faces of marshalled hosts of battle of eyes deep and calm with the smile of a loving mother's welcome of the great forgiveness in a father's affection had i found that flower seventy years before i believe my appreciation of the divine power would have been greater my heart would have been more satisfied my soul 
more fully illuminated and pervaded by a holier peace we lose ourselves in all attempts to grasp the cause of which this small flower is the result it is impossible to find words to convey the strange emotions which this newly found flower aroused and to tell of the distant realms my imagination visited while i meditated there if we would free ourselves from the perplexing cares which our daily duties demand if we would forget the worries of each day if the losses and disappointments and the wrongs of many years did not press themselves upon us if the demands of many duties and the demands upon our attention and the calls of friends did not interrupt we could find in contemplating this wee flower of the field a fund of happiness which years of sorrow and misfortune could not destroy bacon and burke and niebuhr discovered how much of grandeur can come into a life from the little things about us but they all discovered it when it was too late to go back and live the ideal life of simplicity and individuality which was suggested to them by a drop of water and a humming bird the smallest things are the largest in importance if they bring into our lives the largest thoughts and feelings and an incentive to largest actions for self and humanity why are we for ever looking upon the horizon for what upon closer view lies at our feet these little beauties of the field rebuke the wanderer and the eminent man when it says to all the world with a sweet smile and a dainty pout you could have found more in my life than has ever been learned from the sages while zinzendorf was stranded nearly a year upon a tiny island his vigorous mind was forced to occupy itself in observing the objects upon the shore his examinations of the colours in the clamshell led him to say later in life at a meeting of philosophers that a lifetime study of these colours should develop more of the beautiful than all the manufactured colour combinations then known art has not yet been able to combine the shades shown in the shell of an oyster and the wings of the gin bug have been enlarged and copied by coloured photography and will greatly influence all art hereafter man's needs shall be best supplied by beginning at the source and following the creator in developing them into things of beauty and service although the agricultural department at washington spent eight million dollars in the study of seeds and their growth by sending experts to roam over the world for investigations yet the observations of luther burbank and many like investigators in the agricultural colleges throughout the country have made many more important discoveries their observations have brought about a greater increase of production to the acre than all the results of those who roamed the earth for the government and no one would say that their work was not a fair investment for the nation observation convinces us that the sooner we get down to the simplicities of life the longer and healthier and nobler shall life become the healthiest are those with one loaf and a natural hunger along with them the noblest lives are those who are anxious to become as divine as it is possible for them to be are ever alert for little deeds of kindness how much richer life the poet lives who can sympathize with the field mice like burns who is lifted heavenward by the fringed gentian like byron who gets the messages of peace from the frosted pumpkin like riley like shakespeare we too may find tongues in trees books in running brooks sermons in stones and good in everything if we will but use our eyes for seeing our ears for hearing our heads for understanding and our hearts for feeling the poor man's university gives its course everywhere 
a no entrance examination is requisite other than a mind willing to concentrate upon the sublime objects which by the million lie within our vision chapter four home reading carlyle says that a collection of books is a true university in these days it might be added that often the smaller the collection the larger shall be the university education derived from libraries is unsafe for book dissipation as well as drunkenness ends in debauchery toward the end of his long and wide awake life dr holmes advised a young correspondent to confine his reading to the bible shakespeare and a good dictionary the list of men who have been lifted to higher regions of thought and feeling and action from reading any of these three would be too long to be compressed within the covers of one book books are like two-edged swords dangerous unless one knows how to use them they either lead up or drag down and we sink or rise to the level of the books we read everyone reads but how many read to advantage Goethe, the greatest of all the very greatest germans said i have been learning how to read for the past fifty years but have not yet succeeded the majority of readers resemble our glasses their reading runs in and out and leaves no traces and some others are like housewives jelly bags they pass all that is good and retain only the refuse at best only a small percentage of our life is spent in school the greater part of the remainder each must pass in the university of daily life where our education is derived from experience gained through close observation in daily contact with our fellows and from the fellowship of books fellowship fits the relation perfectly but there must be intimate intercourse such as this word implies or nothing it is with books as with life a man profits little from being merely acquainted with ten thousand and he may be incalculably injured from his intercourse with them but a few choice friends often the fewer the better bring a steady growth of higher spiritual power greater than can be had from all other influences combined so it is with books acquaintance with a thousand often renders a capable man incompetent but a few choice friends with whom he frequently and earnestly communes lift him in strength of intellect and will and tenderness and sweetness of feeling to be the peer of the worthiest the beginning of new england was the golden age of scholarship in america for many of the founders of these colonies had been reared in english universities such was the struggle in these bleak and barren colonies for existence during the first years that in a few generations the majority of their posterity were strangers to almost all the books of power and knowledge with which their forefathers were acquainted and were forced to clean all they harvested from the bible and the almanac especially the almanac the almanac was eagerly perused by every member of the family from the dawn of the year to its setting the reputed thrift of the plain people in this corner of the great world is largely attributable to the lessons of the almanac mainly per richard's almanac which the bostonian franklin annually edited in philadelphia for over a quarter of a century his chief purpose was to drive home forcibly many lessons which might encourage the colonists to get the most out of their hard and isolated lives peabody the successful man of business and munificent philanthropist said that an almanac and a jackknife were the foundation of the education through which he ultimately did so much good 
for multitudes of his countrymen it should be interesting and instructive to know how many more during the jackknife epoch in new england and the generations since that time have been indebted to one book for the pluck and perseverance by which they have carved out a place of honour for themselves never were books so eagerly so often and so carefully read as these poor almanacs never perhaps has any other book except the bible been so potent an influence in shaping the life of a nation and shaping it to a high place among the nations whose beneficent influences have humanized the world many a writer has reminded us that the almanac was the textbook studied by our ancestry in beginning the enormous agricultural commercial mercantile manufacturing and financial interests which in four generations have placed us in front of the richest nations of the earth think of the many millions of dollars invested in library buildings and the many millions more invested in the books they shelter think of the five hundred millions spent annually in public education and the hundreds of millions that have been put into college buildings and college breeding still from all this stupendous investment there will never come men and women who will make any more out of their learning than thousands of men and women of colonial days who knew the contents of no books other than the bible and the almanac the quality of the literary attainment of those reared in a library may be higher and perhaps not but wider and deeper self-knowledge self-respect self-confidence self-culture self-control are the supreme objects of all life struggle and educational struggle where a man gets the educational tools with which to accomplish all this is not at all important if an almanac can help one man to get the same life result as another man gets from the polishing of the greatest universities in the world the almanac is the peer of the university whether materials as insignificant as the almanac have been used to attain just such results the history of our country and of several other countries can readily prove three books made up the library of lincoln the real splitter of edison and carnegie the telegraph operators but no three men of the nation were ever more successful in reaching the goals they set for themselves books are to-day the great universal means of knowing and knowing them depends upon reading them rightly it is not so important how many books we read but how we read them a well-read fool is one of the most pestilential of blockheads one book read avails more than a thousand skimmed little reading and much thinking make a wise man much reading and little thinking has bred the race which the plain man call learned fools and these are mainly responsible for any ridicule that is put upon the work of school and college in these days when the printing press has largely superseded the pulpit and the platform it is vitally important that men shall be taught how to read rightly and shall be helped to habits of right reading and no school or college that is decently interested in the welfare of the people can disregard this one duty of teachers above all others much of the best in thought and feeling and conduct shall depend hereafter upon the books which we read with careful observation every man who has read himself into higher realms is under bonds to make the source of so much bliss and blessedness as admirable and as desirable as possible to all who are strangers to the most pleasant and profitable paths of literature it is not the quantity of our reading but the quality that makes it and us an influence for good to our fellows a man who has read ten pages with real accuracy says john ruskin is for evermore 
in some measure an educated person you might read all the books in the british museum yet be an utterly illiterate and uneducated person our reading without digestion and assimilation is as useless as our food without them bacon says that reading makes a full man but fullness without digestion is dyspepsia the books whose reading impels us to live nobly and do noble service for others are the books and it is a wicked waste of time to read what is a negative quantity whoever masters one vital book can never become commonplace thoroughness is the master passion in reading and in every other undertaking as in every other undertaking those who have accumulated wisdom culture power riches are always prominent for their indefatigable painstaking thoroughness nothing to them is a strife for trifles make perfection and perfection is no trife those who have thought most and felt most and done most from their reading have brought this master passion to it when we begin to become acquainted with all the worthy men and women who trace the beginning of their worth to the careful reading of one book it seems almost a loss to the world to have the libraries of the world so large if they were all respectable occupants of their shelves it might be condoned but the copyright of millions of books is the only right human or divine for their existing at all many a country boy at the fireside during the long winter evenings has received inspiration from repeatedly reading one or two worthy books these have spurred him on to fight his way valiantly through college and from there to the heights in some worthy life work if we are true to all that manhood involves there is no self-deception in the conviction that each one of us is born for kingship supreme kingship consists in a stronger moral state and a truer thoughtful state than that of other men which enables us to guide and raise the misguided and the illiterate every thoughtful man and woman ultimately discovers that all education and all literature are useful only so far as they confirm this calm and beneficent kingly power emerson's man-thinking is the supreme about human beings the best that can be known and experienced lies asleep in books and one of the chief purposes for getting an education is to give us the well-made head and the finer feeling to awake this best knowledge and experience in these sleeping princes de quincey reminds us that all the greatest books may be divided into the literature of knowledge and the literature of power they have all been written in utmost sincerity by the right-minded and the strong-minded they disclose boundless fields for soul refreshment and soul expansion in the march of civilization the men and the nations that have forged farthest ahead since gutenberg invented printing are the men and the nations that have had most to do with the few books of knowledge and power of the greatest and the wisest there can be no better test of a man's thought and feelings and actions than the books he reads and the books he keeps around him and there is none so desolate as the poor rich man who lives in a great bookless house and has never fed upon the dainties that are bred in books as john milton says the very presence of books is refining and the right kind of man would as soon think of building his house without windows as of furnishing it without books in every well-regulated home of intelligent men and women the library is always one of the annual items of expenditure when we have learned how to consult the books of knowledge and power they let us mingle with the best society of all ages they make the mightiest men and women of words and deeds our advisers 
They bring us the gold of learning and the gems of thought, and they furnish us with soul food which brings the proper kind of soul growth. Such books are the safest of companions, for they protect us from vice and the inferior passions. More than ever they are today indispensable for all who are striving to do the higher work of civilization and Christianity. Every real book we really read gives us greater faith in the goodness and the nobility of life. As Lowell says, adds another block to the climbing spire of a great soul, the other sort, which swarm from the cosy marshes of immoral brains, the sort also who rack their brains for liquor, do the devil's work for him, and are as baneful as the company of fools and vulgarians. Show an observant man your bookshelves, and he'll tell you what you are. The man who does not love some great book is not worth the time we spend in his company. We are fortunate if we are not in some way contaminated by him. If we knew the road they have travelled, we should likely find that those of modern times who have merited the crown of kings and queens for their stronger moral state and their truer thoughtful state have had most to do with some literature of knowledge and power, that they especially oftenest consulted the books of the greatest and wisest in their difficulties, and have been spurred on by their messages to the thoughts and the deeds which made them worthy. It is fortunate that today the greatest of books are the common property of the printers of the world, for they are on this account the cheapest, and many of them can be had for the price of a poor man's dinner. It needs many a page to record even the names of the men and women who have become somebody, and have done something just from reading some one worthy book which has fallen into their hands. Many believe that Franklin is the greatest American that has yet appeared, and he has said that Cotton Mather's essay to do good gave me a turn of thinking which perhaps had an influence on some of the principal future events of my life. As we become better acquainted with some of the great books in all departments of literature, we are surprised to find how few of them have been written by college men. This by no means belittles the good that may come from a true college course, but it does seem to emphasize that great books need some other environment for their growth than exclusive college courses. Perhaps the need is solicitude, communion with nature, and frequent intercourse with the world's greatest and best in thought and feeling and action for the work. College-bred men are in a marked minority among the authors whose great books have been and are a potent force in shaping thought and conduct in the world. It is notable how few of these have anything commendatory to say about the influence which their college life had upon them and their accomplishments. Many even of the textbooks of schools and colleges have come from men whose powers were shaped by no school. How many textbooks of medicine and law were prepared by physicians and lawyers whose knowledge was gleaned mainly from keen observation and long experience and deep thought? It was no mere college education, but the sharpest home observation and strictest adherence to their instincts and their individuality that made forceful writers of Mark Twain, the Mississippi pilot, Bret Hart and William Dean Howells, the typesetters, James Whitcomb Riley, the itinerant sign painter, Joel Chandler, Harris and Eugene Field, the newspaper reporters, and Walt Whitman, the carpenter. Of the 4,043 Americans, with over 20 millions of dollars to their credit, only 61 had even a high school course. 
Many among them, however, had high-class mentality and secured a comprehensive practical education. They have evidently been as alert to perceive the treasures hidden from them in the world of great books as they have been to perceive the treasuries hidden for them in their various enterprises. So we find that they have consulted the master spirits of books after their daily tasks were done, while myriad of those who scoff and sneer at them, now because of their millions, were feasting, frolicking and dissipating. Among the greatest types of American manhood today, a large majority are the new rich men. Whatever else may be said about them, all the world acknowledges that it is the parvenus in every land who do the largest part of the greatest work. The larger our horizon becomes, the stronger is our conviction that the man himself is mainly the architect of his own fate. Others may give an occasional lift, but it is almost entirely his own work. The college can do something for the headpiece, and it should also give something for the heart side and the power to dare and to do. But all the external training in the world can never attain for the man what he can attain through his own individual efforts, provided he has lofty aims, firm resolutions, closely observes and strictly adheres to all his best inborn powers. There was no college for David, Homer, Socrates, Plato, Confucius, Alexander, Caesar, Dante, Luther, Shakespeare, Napoleon, Washington, Franklin, Gotha, Jesus, and tens of thousands of great or lesser men than these. They all marked out their own course, planned their own spiritual palaces. All the barbed wire entanglements in the world did not retard their indomitable courage. Self-reliance and self-help, perhaps the chief use of all learning establishments, except those which have to do with what the Germans call bread studies, is to awaken the pupil's self-respect, which is the basis of all virtue, and to cultivate the powers that shall fit the pupil to consult for himself the knowledge and power books of the greatest and the wisest. They also can, in these days, do yeoman's service, in giving the bread studies through which men shall be better able to do the world's work, and thereby earn better wages. End of chapters 1, 2 and 4 of Every Man His Own University by Russell Herman Conwell